0: All right, and please open to um, Galatians 6, chapter Galatians, Galatians 6, chapter 1, chapter 6, verse 1. How about that in Galatians? And so we'll take a look at that this morning, just one verse as part of our uh, series in Galatians. There's some notes in the back, so if you want to grab a copy of notes and follow along, if that helps you not fall asleep, that'd be great. And so here we go. This is Galatians 6, chapter... Wow, I can't... I keep saying that. Chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin... You who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Just one verse in chapter 6. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Now, just to take a minute to talk a little bit about background for the letter to the Galatians, just before we look at this verse, uh, you ask the question, why did Paul write this letter? Why did he write to the Christians in uh, Galatia in the first place? And in turn, uh, through the ages, he's writing to you and to me. Uh, Paul wrote this letter because at the time of the writing of the letter, some Christians were turning away from the gospel of grace. They were turning away, literally, from Jesus. And they were kind of embracing a mix of Old Testament rules and regulations as well as the gospel of grace. They were mixing the two in an unhealthy way. And for Paul, the gospel wasn't just merely something to defend. And of course, he did defend the gospel. But for Paul, the gospel was something that he wanted to encourage believers to embrace. He wanted believers to think in and believe in the gospel. Because Paul understood that if believers were thinking in and believing in the gospel, then the power of the gospel would become real in their day-to-day living. Theologian Warren Wiersbe sums up uh, Paul's concern and how he expresses the gospel this way, and I just love this. The gospel centers in a person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This person paid a price. He gave himself to die on the cross. Christ paid the price that he might achieve a purpose, delivering sinners from bondage. In other words, religion... And all that it requires cannot, cannot put you in right relationship with God. And what does religion require? Religion requires ceremony, uh, an adherence to externals, whatever they may be, codes, regulations, rules, if you will. And that is not the core of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I have a marriage license somewhere in a file in my home. Because I have a marriage license, that doesn't automatically mean that I have a healthy, growing marriage. And some of us are making, you know, it's that maybe some of you here consider yourselves to be religious. You go to Manuka Bible Church and sing songs and all that kind of thing. Uh, but just because you consider yourself religious or do religious things, that doesn't mean you have a loving, growing, healthy relationship with Jesus Christ. So Paul is writing this letter to Christians, encouraging us to think in and believe in the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and not, not to be trapped in the false sense of spirituality and security that religion can create. In other words, Paul wants us to experience freedom, free from the law, from working to earn favor with God, free to serve Christ Free to be transformed by the Holy Spirit and free to love as Jesus loved. And it is this last point, free to love as Jesus loved, that we're talking about this weekend. Now, Paul has already talked about love in Galatians. In uh, chapter 5, he writes, what is important is faith expressing itself in love. Can we read that together? Let's read it. What is important is faith expressing itself in love. I know it's early, but I'm not quite sure you believe that. Let's read it again. What is important is faith expressing itself in love. Now, by the time Paul writes this in his letter, he has kind of gone after the Judaizers, those who wish to kind of trip up Christians and say, look, you've got to, you've got to follow the law of Moses. In fact, there were some saying, you've got to be circumcised. You've got to follow these rules and regulations in order to be right right with God. And Paul is making this argument in various ways and he's saying, no, no. You do not have to do that. And almost in a summary way, he gets to this point in the letter and he says, look, what is important is faith expressing itself in love. Faith expressing itself in love. You see, if it's all about... Religion rules externals what's going to happen at some point and I've been there in in my life I grew up in a different expression of Christianity what happens to you and to me if it's all about externals at some point you ask the question am I getting it right am I doing it right is this gonna make me right with God is all this stuff that I'm trying to accomplish is that cutting it And after a while, if you stay within that kind of version of of what I think it it takes to be right with God, I begin to look at your life, you begin to look at my life, I begin to look at your life, and then what do I do? I compare my life to your life, because it's all about externals. It's all about rules, If it's all about following codes and regulations that at some point I'm going to ask myself, am I getting it right? And then secondly, what do I look like next to you? And then at some point I'm going to be like, well, I'm so much better than you are in that particular area. So, I'm good. Or, well, I'm not quite as good as you are, but hey, after all, these other areas are really good at, you know. So, see what Paul is saying, look, Christians, don't don't go backwards, move forward into grace. Because if you think in rules and regulations, you're not free to love. You're not free to love. Because at some point, you're going to begin comparing yourself. And of course, um, the scriptures talk about love all over the place. Here's just three examples. Three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love, indicating the preeminence of love in God's kingdom whoever does not love does not know God because God is love and that's speaking to the intimate connection between our relationship with God what that looks like and our capacity to express love according to the gospel there's an intimate connection between our relationship with God and how we process that how we live that and our capacity to give away the kind of love that Jesus wants us to give away. And then finally, we love each other because he first loved us. The motivation for love. If it's about externals, if it's about meeting some kind of requirement, that I don't have any motivation to love other than to make myself look good. Okay? Other than to make, you know, to build myself up so that this could be better. The motivation for love, according to the scriptures, we love each other because he first loved us. He found me as just as I was, just as I am, and he loved me first, and so there's the motivation. So in 6.1, in Galatians 6.1, Paul applies what it means to live by the Holy Spirit right down in the middle of what can be a very messy, messy part of life. So we're talking about this morning, how do we love someone when we need to confront them over a sin issue in their life? How do we love someone when we have to have that difficult conversation regarding their sin? How do we love someone when we need to help someone see their sin and deal with their sin? Because they can't even see it. And Paul tells us straight up, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. So there's those two words that I want to focus on this morning, how do we love someone when we need to confront them over a sin issue in their life? Restore gently. How do we love someone when we have to have the difficult conversation? Restore gently. How do we love someone when we need to help someone see their sin or deal with their sin because they just can't see their sin? Restore gently. So, when we think about what Paul is trying to get us to um, embrace, I thought about this awesome 1964 Chevy Impala. This is my neighbor's car. This is George's car. When I moved to my house in 2004, that car was this kind of rusty piece of junk, I thought, sitting in his garage. It was on blocks, no seats in it, nothing in it, just this kind of rusty, nasty-looking shell. There wasn't a hood on it. There wasn't a, a trunk on it, no glass, no tires, nothing. It just sat there from my perspective, it seems like sat there in that condition forever. George has put his hands on every aspect of his car. He has painted, sanded, buffed, I mean, rewired. He rebuilt the engine, you know, by his hand. I, I mean, he's an engineer. He comes from uh, the GM locomotive division. And uh, so, you know, I like, George, you're awesome because... I can't imagine having that kind of mind or patience, for that matter, to do this endeavor. But that's what it looked like after it was done. And I remember for years it seemed like he was getting nowhere. It just kind of sat there, and little, you know, one day I might see, you know, oh, you have a tire on, awesome. So finally, I went over to him one day because I used to love watching him do his thing and asking him questions about what he was doing. And I said, George, you know, when are you gonna, when are you gonna finish the Chevy? You know, I just because to me it just seemed like, wow, he's just he's not gonna finish this thing. And he looks at me and he says something like this. He says, Carlos. It's not about finishing. It's about the process. It's about the journey, he said. He said, my goal, he said, is not to finish this car. Okay? And that's what we're talking about when we talk about restore. When we talk about restore, we're talking about committed to be there, committed to be willing to get messy, and committed to believing the best about what God wants for someone. When, uh, just when we were transitioning from Michigan to here 12, 13 years ago, um, Roots' mom gave us a call. And There's a family friend that we have. In fact, he was one of the pastors at our wedding. We had three pastors at our wedding. We wanted to get married, for sure. And so we had three pastors. He was Lutheran, and then we had our college pastor, and then the Baptist pastor. So we had most of the theological bases covered, and we got married. And so this one pastor is a family friend uh, from Roots' family. And, and Roots' mom gave us a call and told us he was in trouble. And uh, she was concerned for him. And uh, in fact, the trouble was so deep, this is how deep the trouble was, the FBI was involved kind of trouble, okay? And so uh, we decided, because we just uh, just loved him, and he had been a family friend for so many years, to Root's mom particularly, that we left the Midwest and drove to the East Coast to just be with them, okay? And, and we, we didn't know the full nature of what was going on. But we knew it was it was hard, we knew it was difficult. So we drove from the Midwest to the East Coast. I think we spent about three days there with them, and it was messy. Yeah, it was, it was messy, it was scary. Uh, a lot of times it was just listening, uh, not quite knowing what to say or how to respond. But we chose just to be there, just to be a, the ministry of presence, if you will, and just say we love you and, and be beside them. And uh, those were hard days just to, you know, This is a person who is incredibly talented, intelligent. I mean, just, you know, yeah, amazing, just an amazing person in every way, but just struggling, just struggling. And um, I think it was months later, maybe, or weeks later, they had an opportunity to go to get some help at a counseling center. And so Ruth flew back over to the East Coast and took Chris, who was just, I think, pre-K or kindergarten at that time, and stayed the week while, and watched over their kids while they were in a counseling center and getting some help. And so, you know, I, I'm, I, was, I often look back on, on that moment on those days. And, and today, they're, I mean, God has just worked a miracle in their lives in terms of their heart and their journey. And uh, we're so grateful that we had a, a little, little tiny part in just saying to them, look, we're going to walk beside you. Because if you're going to, if you're going to uh, confront someone with their sin, help them with their sin, you've got to make a commitment to do these things and to kind of walk through all that messy stuff and to believe the best. And when I say believe the best, this is what I mean. For we, you, for we are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things. He planned for us long ago. When you are walking in the steps or in the area of someone's story and their soul, you're on holy ground. You're in a place where you begin to realize this is a person that God considers a masterpiece. So you don't want to mess up the masterpiece. So if we're going to confront people with their sin, let's understand who we're talking about. We're talking about a person made in his image. And he's a masterpiece that you're now a part of. And that by God's grace, you may be a small, a small role. You may have a small role in helping that person you know, live in, in who they are in Christ. So that's what it means to restore. And then this beautiful word, gently. How about gentle words? How about being committed to gentle words? If you're going to confront someone about sin in their life. I think we're called to restore gently. Proverbs says the tongue has the power of life and death. The tongue has the power of life and death. And so we want to give words of life to those that we're talking to. The Proverbs also say the words of the reckless pierce like swords. Okay, for you Star Wars fans, pierce like lightsabers. So reckless words, it's just like, you know, the thrust of the saber in someone's life, in someone's heart. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. How about a kind attitude? If we're going to restore gently, if we're going to talk to someone about a sin issue in their life, okay, how about a kind attitude? Paul speaks about attitude all over his letters. In Philippians, he says, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Even that person you're having to talk to about an issue, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And how about a loving patient? Sometimes I'm patient, but I'm like uh, looking at my wash patient, tapping my foot patient. I mean, you know, we're, we live in a culture where we stand in front of a microwave and say, hurry up. Okay. It's that thing designed to cook things faster. We want that to go faster. So, you know, patience is not easy for me, but how about loving patience? The patience that is willing to wait, to give space, to give room, not to hurry things along. Because you want to cooperate with what God is doing. And and that can take time. That can take time. Okay? The agenda is not ours to direct. It's what God is doing. So restore gently. Here's how Paul writes about this in Ephesians. Sometimes be humble and gentle. Occasionally be humble and gentle. When it suits you. Be humble and gentle. When you feel like it, be humble and gentle. When you're in the mood, be humble and gentle. What does it say, class? Always, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace, what would our marriages look like if we were always humble and gentle and made room, made allowance? You know, what if you cleared out all the other stuff in your heart? You know, the, the, the critical spirit, the impatience, you cleared all that out and you make much more room for each other's faults. You just, make, you just welcome all that in there. Okay? Because you're patient. Because you're always humble and gentle. Because you're going to make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit. But how do we do this?
1: How do we do this?
0: Because you might say, Carlos, you don't know my husband. Have you seen my kids? Do you know the person I have to work next to in that cubicle at work? Okay. How do we do this? Because this comes up, you know, it's not just going to be that person on the East Coast that's in big trouble, it's going to be those little moments in marriage with your children, with the coworker, with the neighbor, those interchanges where you just have to talk to someone, have a hard conversation about either their behavior, their attitude, you know, whatever. This is going to come up over and over and over again. It's not always a large kind of big kind of issue. It's often just little things that you have to address in a loving manner because we're called to be always humble and gentle. So here's some suggestions that Scripture teaches us. Okay, the first one I call the circle of the Christian life. We have the circle of life. This is the circle of the Christian life. You're going to draw a circle around yourself and work on everything in that circle. That's the attitude the scriptures call us to keep. You draw a circle around yourself. I'm going to draw a circle around Carlos. and I'm going to work on everything in that circle. Now, if we maintain that kind of attitude, suddenly when we have to move towards someone and speak to them about something that they're struggling with, a sin issue that we see. We're, we're, we're moving towards them in this circle where we're recognizing and just being honest and real about what's inside this circle. I've got my issues. I've got my struggles. I've got sin in my heart that God needs to root out, okay? And I'm never done with that until I'm in heaven. So I'm always in this circle. God's always working on me. If I just acknowledge that, this is my attitude. This is my stance. When I take that step towards my wife or towards my child or my neighbor or my coworker, I am stepping towards that person, but I never leave this circle. I just know who I am. I'm not that great. I got issues. So this is an attitude the Scriptures call us to keep. Another thing I'd like for us to consider is to be a J.D. 7 Christian. New term. J.D. 7 Christian. Drop the rock! And so if you look on um, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 7. I'm not going to read it. I'll let you find it. Many of you know what this says. Um, This is another attitude that the Scriptures teach us to have. Okay? J.D. 7 Christian. So I was going to get a bunch of rocks, but you live in Nooka, You can find a rock. So... I, uh, Sharpie J87 on this rock. It's on my desk. And so this is going to be my reminder to drop the rock. Okay. And go ahead and find that. That'll be your homework. Find that chapter, chapter eight, look at verse seven, read that story, and you'll know what we're talking about. It's a heart attitude that I'm to maintain about myself before God. Okay. If I'm going to restore gently, always be humble and gentle, express patience and kindness I've got to stay in this circle and recognize I'm always in this circle. God's always got to do stuff in me because I'm not done. He's not done with me yet. Okay, and then I want to be a JD7 Christian and I'll let you research that and find out what that's all about. And then how do we do this? My last suggestion will be that you ought to deal with the noodle in your own eye. And so in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus talks about this. You know, if you're going to talk to someone about stuff, You know, even if it's little stuff in their life, you have to deal with, like, the noodle in your own eye. And you don't want to be the person that begins to walk around, you know, dangerously so. You're like, hey, Dave, did you take care of that, you know, that little thing we talked about the other day, you know? Make sure you deal with it, okay, dude? Because, you know, you wouldn't want to, I mean, you want to be more like me, you know, not like what you're doing. Jim, how's it going? You know, have you you dealt with that issue that I've been praying for you about? Because, you know, it's all about God, you know? And take a look at my life, you know. It's like, Try to do better, would you? Okay, thanks, see you. You know, we don't want to be this person who who walks around, has not dealt with the noodle in their own eye, and then just begins to find anyone they can, you know, take a look at and say, hey, take care of that, would you? Because it's really bugging me. It's like something in my eyes. Would you fix it? Gosh, it's just awful. And if we do this long enough... If we do this long enough, we're going to kind of develop this attitude, you know, especially if, if you haven't kind of thought through living in and believing in the gospel, we're going to maybe be the police, the sin police, and run up to people and say, are you still sinning? Get your act together. Pull over. License, insurance. Let me see your study Bible. You don't have a study Bible? Oh, my shattered nerves. Everything's going to go terrible. And then you go over here to your spouse. Have I talked to you about this before? You're still doing it. We just end up being this, uh, sin police, behavior police, external police, because we left our circle, we're not being kind and patient. I I don't have room to, I've done it, you know, I have to confess, I've done it, I've lived like this with this kind of attitude. I don't have the room in my life and story to do that. I'm not that good. I'm just not, you know, especially according to the scriptures. In fact, take a look at this.
2: think you are you aren't not according to any standard but you still don't seem to realize it you're not a good person you're selfish spiteful greedy you lust and hate and hurt you lie and scheme and act innocent you judge others constantly you are not a good person Your ego has convinced you that you are a great person and all your bad deeds have good reasons. But deep down, in the cellar of your soul, you know the truth. You are a self-centered sinner that spends more effort pretending to do the right things than doing them. You are not a good person, but there's good news. Jesus didn't die on the cross for good people churches aren't here for good people to meet in. Heaven isn't full of good people. Good people don't exist. Just real people. Christ died for sinners. Church is a hospital, not a beauty pageant. Heaven is full of people like you that realized they needed God's help to become what they needed to be. God's people. You are not a good person, but God can make you something better. Christian, I'm gonna switch mics, Chuck.
0: So, when I saw that video, it was man, it was hard to watch. You know, I was trying to think of things in my brain to just kind of fight that video. But here's the thing the gospel centers in a person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This person paid the price he gave himself to die on the cross. Christ paid the price that he might achieve a purpose, delivering sinners from bondage. And that looks like this. This is a a barren hilltop in Montana. It was there in April. So it was just emerging from a cold Montana winter. And um, other than the evergreens, not a whole lot of vegetation. In fact, the earth was still hard and cold and crackly. You know, everything's gray and dusty. And uh, just cold, you know, and in the midst of this cold dirt, I was walking around, looked down and this is what I saw. I saw this hilltop flower just in the middle of all this, you know, nastiness in terms of the, the earth. So when we have to talk to someone about their sin, when we have to love someone, you know, through their sin, when we make that choice to kind of enter in the mess of their life, and the consequences of their choices. And, you know, at times it seems like we're getting nowhere. We give and we give and we give and we give. When we, if we're in that place, we're called to remember that we are this, this is what Christ did in my life. Cause I was that barren hilltop, cold, dirty. And this is what he gave me. He gave me hope. He gave me life and beauty but it's all from him it's all from jesus it belongs to christ and he just he gave that to me so i'm free now to drop the rock at my hand i can by his grace deal with the noodle in my own eye and i can remember what christ has done for me and then i can choose to restore gently because i'm gonna stop paying attention to externals And remember that whatever beauty is in this heart, whatever I happen to call good that's in this heart, that belongs to Jesus. And uh, he gives that to me from his grace, from his kindness when I surrender to him. I'm no different than anyone. I am a miracle of God's
1: mercy. If the truth was known and a light was shown on every hidden part of my soul, Most would turn away, shake their heads and say, He still has such a long way to go. If the truth was known, you'd see That the only good in me Is Jesus, oh, it's Jesus. If the walls could speak of the times I was weak, when everybody thought I was strong, could I show my face if it weren't for the grace of the one who's known the truth all along? If the walls could speak, they'd say that my only hope is the grace of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, but oh, the goodness and the grace in him, he takes it all and makes it mine, he causes his life. could this be real could this be true this could only be a miracle
0: Father we pray that you would help us to remember that we are a miracle of your mercy that there is nothing good inside of us apart from Christ so we rejoice today that it is Jesus that gives us love forgiveness and cleansing so that the good that you want to bring to the world now has room to grow in our hearts and so father we ask that in our marriages in that difficult relationship perhaps we have with a child with that neighbor or co-worker that you would help us to be a good ambassador you would help us to live inside our own circle to freely love to give away the grace that we've been granted to point people to Jesus by remembering all that you've done on our behalf and I pray and ask this in Jesus name Amen